2 Kings chapter 15. I want to read the first seven verses here. Then I want us to turn over to 2 Chronicles 26. 2 Kings 15. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, son of Amaziah, king of Judah, became king. He was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Only the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. The Lord struck the king so that he was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house, while Jotham, the king's son, was over the household judging the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Azariah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Azariah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. And Jotham, his son, became king in his place. And then if you go to 2 Chronicles chapter 26, 2 Chronicles chapter 26, starting at verse 1, same king here, but the story is expanded for us. Verse 1, And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in the place of his father Amaziah. He built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. Now he went out and warred against the Philistines and broke down the wall of Gath and the wall of Jebna and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities in the area of Ashdod among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gerbaal and the Meonites. The Ammonites also gave tribute to Uzziah, and his fame extended to the border of Egypt, for he became very strong. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the corner buttress and fortified them. He built towers in the wilderness and hewed many cisterns, for he had much livestock, both in the lowland and in the plain. He also had plowmen and vine dressers in the hill country and the fertile fields, for he loved the soil. Moreover, Uzziah had an army ready for battle, which entered combat by divisions according to the number of their muster, prepared by Jeel, the scribe, and Maaseiah, the official, under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's officers. The total number of the heads of the households of valiant warriors was 2,600. Under their direction was an elite army of 307,500 who could wage war with great power to help the king against the enemy. Moreover, Uzziah prepared for all the army shields, 
spears, helmets, body armor, bows, and sling stones. In Jerusalem, he made engines of war invented by skillful men to be on the towers and on the corners for the purpose of shooting arrows and great stones. Hence, his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped until he was strong. Verse 16. But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. For he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Then Azariah the priest entered after him, and with him eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men. They opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and you will have no honor from the Lord God. But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priests, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord, beside the altar of incense. Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous on his forehead. And they hurried him out of there, and he himself also hastened to get out, because the Lord had smitten him. King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And he lived in a separate house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah, first to last, and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amoz, has written. So Uzziah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the field of the grave, which belonged to the kings, for they said, He is a leper. And Jotham, his son, became king in his place. Well, I want to talk about Uzziah here in two parts. Um, and, uh, you know, you could subtitle this. I, I, I entitled, uh, I titled this uh, message, uh, The Tragic Mistake of a Good King. But if I had to make a subtitle, I would use the two points that I'm going to give you this morning, and that is prosperity and pride. Prosperity and pride. Now, let's just by way of introduction remind ourselves just kind of where we've been. Last week, you'll remember, we were talking about uh, a king up north among the ten tribes of Israel. Remember, we, we keep going back and forth. We, we deal with a king in Israel in the northern ten tribes, and then we'll deal with a king in the south. And last week, it was Jeroboam II, and he did evil. And you'll remember that the theme of last week was the doctrine of common grace, that God sometimes will bless his people and even those who are not his people by using even men that we would call wicked. And this is the doctrine of common grace, that God sometimes will give blessings, not sometimes, but many times he gives blessings through the instrumentality of using wicked men, uh, even though they are uh, re rebellious against him. Nevertheless, God will give them good things and gifts so that they might bring blessing to others. And so that was the case with Jeroboam. The week before that, we were looking at Amaziah, who was a king in the south. He was a king of Judah, and he was a good king. But you remember, he was unwise in that he waged war against the ten tribes of Israel 
in the north. So we've seen both sides where we can go wrong. We can go wrong by not listening to the wisdom of men who are in rebellion. And also we need to appreciate that God can use wicked people uh, for good. So sometimes it gets confusing. God, by common grace, can bless through evil men. And sometimes even the best of good men make tragic mistakes. Now, Uzziah, or uh, Azariah, as he's sometimes known in the scriptures as well, is a good man. We need to start there. He is fundamentally a good man. The Bible, both in Kings and Chronicles, tells us here that he was a good king. Verse 3 in our text, 2 Kings 15, he, Uzziah, did right in the sight of the Lord. That's the fundamental sentence about him. He did right in the sight of the Lord according as his father Amaziah had done. Now, what I want to do is give us two parts here. First of all, we're going to look at the prosperity under King Uzziah, and then and we'll make some applications. And then secondly, the pride of Uzziah, his downfall, though he was a good man. So in this uh, account, along with the account in Chronicles, we see that Uzziah was actually an extraordinary king. Now, the first thing I want us to note here is, th is that he was raised to a position of power, and I want teenagers here to listen closely, at the tender age of 16 years old. So imagine some of you teenagers, or maybe some of you who are younger than teenagers, in just a matter of few years, you are made king. Well, that was the position that Uzziah found himself in. And yet, even though he is young and inexperienced, nevertheless, he followed his own father's good example. So something for some of you young people to remember and consider that you follow your father as he follows the Lord Jesus Christ. Uzziah got off to a good start. He had a good father, and he no doubt sought to imitate his father uh, at an early age insofar as his father was faithful to the Lord. So here he is at 16 years old, and he is reigning righteously. He also has an extraordinary reign. He reigned for 52 years in Jerusalem, and that is certainly a lot. Now he's got nothing on Queen Elizabeth II, who reigned 70 years, right? But 52 years still is a very uh, long reign, no doubt. And he um, did a lot of good. Let's just go over some of the, the good that he did, and then I want to make some applications. Second Chronicles chapter 26 and verse 5 tells us this. He continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who was a prophet, in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God. As long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. So the chronicler, along with the historian in the book of Kings, tells us that Uzziah prospered and that the, the secret to his prosperity as king as a type of Christ, as a, a forerunner, a shadow of the Messiah to come, was that he sought the Lord. He sought God even at 16 years old. He was seeking God and that the blessing of God was upon him 
as he was seeking God. And then we are told of what came in the train of those blessings. Let me list them for you. Number one, he defeated the Philistines. Remember, this is a perennial enemy of the people of God. They live on the coast of Israel. And you think uh, like Gaza. We often hear it even to this day about the Gaza Strip. You'll turn on the news, you hear about the troubles in, in Gaza. Um, that is where the Philistines used to live. And David was at war with them. Remember, the war continues. Uh, it will really even, you know, with, begins with Saul. And Jonathan had some great victories over the Philistines. Later, David had victories, of course, uh, over Goliath being one of the chief battles that was a great victory for the people of God. Um, but they were not eradicated. Though the, the, they pressed them hard, they were never completely eradicated from the land. They were still there in the days of Solomon, in the days of kings. And as there was declension in Judah and Israel, the Philistines sometimes were used by God to attack the people of God and cause them to cry out to the Lord. So here, though, Uzziah brings battle to the Philistines and he defeats them. Number two, he also had victory over the Arabs. Those would be those that were kind of south and southwest, or southeast, excuse me, of, of Judah. Southeast of Judah um, on today what we would consider Saudi Arabia, the Arabian Peninsula there. Then we are told, <coughs> thirdly, he pushed the border down all the way to Egypt. So below the Negev, all the way down to the Egyptian border, Israel, remember, was told that they would have their lines drawn all the way to the Egyptian border, all the way to the sea, and all the way, even beyond the river, all the way to even the Euphrates. That was to be the promise to Israel uh, if they were faithful to God. So Uzziah brings about that. Then, next, um, the Ammonites. Now, the Ammonites lived on the other side of the Jordan. They're east uh, and south. Uh, of Judah and Israel, and we are told that they paid tribute to Judah and to Uzziah. Next, we see that Uzziah was also a builder of the military. He made fortifications uh, in the wall of Jerusalem. He built towers, we are told. Those towers were used for the defense of Jerusalem. He apparently was involved in constructing uh, what, what for that time would have been scientific, uh, military, technological advancements. Uh, we're not told in detail what they are, but we, we are told that because of these machines, uh, they were able to hurl greater stones and more arrows uh, against the enemies. So he's busy about this, building the Jerusalem wall, building the towers, constructing new military equipment for shooting arrows and large stones. And then we're told also that he built these towers in the wilderness, so he, he didn't just do it at Jerusalem. He went out to the uh, perimeters of the territory and did that, and he also uh, did construction projects. We are told he hewed many cisterns, so he, he did a lot of waterworks projects. He built a standing army, 307,000 500 soldiers, a huge standing army. Now, he did all of this. Now, what do we say to all of this? The Bible says here that Uzziah continued to seek God, and God prospered him. 
So I want to say a couple things uh, by way of application. Number one, as I've already alluded to, and especially for you young people, seek the Lord early. That's my first application, is that you seek the Lord early. I don't know why, but for some reason, some people seem to think that having a dramatic conversion uh, later in life, after a life of sin and prodigality, is somehow neater than growing up in the church and uh, living a life of an ordinary conversion, where you may not even know what day it was. You just know the sun has arisen. You don't know what time the sun got up, Spurgeon said, but you know you're in the daylight. But the Bible actually says to seek the Lord early. Seek the Lord while he may be found. The Bible commends young people, children, to know Christ, not to seek some extraordinary experience of sudden conversion, but to quietly be seeking the Lord. We see this with Samuel. Samuel, of course, was dedicated by his mother at an early age. He served in the temple. Of course, that was an extraordinary service. But yet we see here again a young person seeking the Lord early. David says in the Psalms, seek the Lord early. Now, some commentators think that that applies to chronology in terms of your age. Some think it's the time of day. <laughs> I don't know which it is. You morning people, I know you didn't want to hear that. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, or non-morning people, you didn't want to hear that. Um, but um, I, I think it's, it's probably here, David is urging young people uh, in, that, in that verse here. Though we do have the Lord's example of rising before daybreak to go out and into prayer. So it could be, could be either. But uh, we see here that the scripture commends young teenagers who are earnest for the Lord, who are busy about seeking God. Uh, the, the Lord tells us in the New Testament through uh, Paul's letter to Timothy, don't allow anyone to despise your youth, Timothy. You be faithful, though you were called as a young man to Christ and to the service of the Lord in the public ministry of God's word and sacraments. Do not allow your youth to be looked down upon, but show yourself to be an example of godliness. Show yourself, despite the fact that you are young, show yourself to be mature in the Lord. And so I want to urge young people here to devote yourself to the Lord early. Now, what does that mean? What, did, what do you think Uzziah did? What did David do? David was the youngest. Did you know David was the youngest of his siblings? And yet he was the one that was chosen by God. You remember, Samuel thought it was going to be one of the older brothers. In fact, it was the oldest brother who walked in the room, and Samuel says, aha, this is going to be the king. And the Lord said, nope, not him. So bring the next one in, not him. Bring the next one in, not him. Went through all the other brothers. It's none of these, says Samuel. You got any others? I got one. He's out in the field. I mean, the little, the youngest. Go bring him. And the Lord says that was him. And what was David doing? Well, we know the scripture says he was tending the sheep, right? 
But we also know, because I think the Psalms of David allude to it, he was doing more than that, wasn't he? He was using that time as he was tending the sheep to commune with God in the field, wasn't he? That he was seeking the Lord. He was using that time of leading the sheep and guiding them and watching over them and protecting them. He was using it as an opportunity to grow in the Lord. He was communing with the Lord. He was praying as he went about his work. He was singing to the Lord. We know that he was gifted musically, that he no doubt probably had his uh, harp with him out in the field. And then when there was a a moment for relaxation, he probably put himself in some shady spot overlooking the sheep and played on his harp and sung to the Lord. We know also that God tested him as a, a youth. We know that Remember, before the battle with Goliath, David had already been tested by what? The lion and the bear. And that experience gave David the confidence that God would use him in the defeat of Goliath, that that Goliath would be just like the bear or the lion. So David walked with the Lord at an early age. Daniel walked with the Lord at an early age. Daniel was a young man. He was uh, an up-and-coming guy. You know, he was on the fast track. He was always on the fast track to be among the best and the brightest, okay? I mean, he was, that's why Babylon took him out. They, they were seeking those that were on the, on the track for future government employment and future usefulness in the kingdom uh, of Judah. And so Nebuchadnezzar took them and brought them into Babylon. But while there, what do we see? We see Daniel's commitment as a teenager. He was brought to Babylon as a teenager. He was taken by the Babylonian army into captivity, and there he dedicated himself to the Lord. He was not going to allow all the luxuries of the Babylonian court to steer him away from God. It would have been very easy for him to have gone the way of Babylon, to go the way of the world with all the the accoutrements that came with Babylonian power. Same with Moses. Moses was raised, remember, in the the court of Pharaoh as a child, as a young man. And yet, what, he considered, what, the humiliation of Christ, greater riches than everything that Pharaoh's court could offer. So we see here and in other places, young people, that the... The Lord does call and use young people. Don't think, I'm only a boy, I'm only a girl, I'm only a teenager. It may be that you are young, but it may be that God may do extraordinary work of his spirit within you. And the things that you are going through now may be preparing you for much greater usefulness in the future. In each of these cases, we see that they were tested, and also that they made a commitment that they were going to follow the Lord. They were not going to follow all the pleasures of the world. They were going to be dedicated and consecrated to the Lord. So application number one is to seek the Lord early as young people here. Now, the second thing I want us to see about the blessing and the prosperity and the success of Uzziah I want to talk just briefly here on this, because this can be greatly misunderstood, and 
I think we have seen in our culture it greatly abused, and unfortunately it's getting abused on the foreign field because some of this theology, and that is the idea of faith and prosperity. Now, first of all, we, we must see that there is a connection here in verse 5 in 2 Chronicles 26. That is, Uzziah continued to seek God, and what? God prospered him. That is, that God, when he is pleased to do so, often will bless his people. And that there is a level of blessing that comes with faith in the Lord. That is the general proverbial rule. However, this, as I alluded to, can be abused and misunderstood. And we see it on our televisions a lot. And the idea often that you see on your TV is if you will exercise faith and you will give to that particular ministry various amounts of money, then you can have all kinds of luxury and prosperity. And this is what is called the prosperity gospel here. And I think we have to keep a couple things in mind here. First of all, there is a connection between faithfulness to God in a general sense and God's blessing. God is often pleased to bless his people as a community as they put their trust in him. It, I don't think it, it's any coincidence that over the last 500 years, those nations that have followed the Protestant Reformation have been economically the most successful. Yet, we also have to keep in our theology this also another truth of suffering. There is the reality of suffering. And that sometimes God may call faithful people to suffer for his name's sake. And this is why, for example, Job's friends were wrong. They were saying, Job, you must have sinned somehow against God because God would not have despoiled you of all your goods like this. Surely, Job, there's some sin in your life that God is displeased with. Otherwise, you would prosper like you used to. If you will just confess your sin, your prosperity will be restored to you. Now, we know the reason why that this happened to Job is because it was a test of the Lord, that the Lord was testing Job's faith here. It was not because of sin, boys and girls, that Job lost all his children. It was, it was not because of some disobedience in Job's life that the, the, um, all his cattle was raided and that he lost his health. This was a trial from the Lord. So we, we have to understand that blessing does ordinarily come in the train uh, of godliness. As one minister put it this way, that when a person, when a man becomes a Christian, the cocaine bill goes down. The bad habits diminish, sin <laughs> diminishes, and there comes blessing with, with obedience to God and faith to God. But we also have to keep in mind that God's people follow a suffering servant. Nobody was of greater faith than Jesus Christ. No one was of greater faithfulness than Jesus Christ, and yet he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He was a man who was afflicted. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was broken, and he died on the cross as a substitute, not for sins that he committed. He had no sin, but for our sins. He was willing to 
die on that shameful, cursed cross and pay the penalty for us that we could be forgiven and that we could have prosperity. And that's the next thing I want to say about this, is that faith does lead to prosperity ultimately. That we have to keep in mind that faith in Jesus Christ does lead ultimately to prosperity in the new heavens and the new earth. Remember that all the prosperity one could have in this life is nothing compared to that which awaits us. The, the, the great you know, mansions of Biltmore and others, those are shanties compared to what awaits us in the new heavens and the new earth for the, the most humble of Christ's servants. In my house are many mansions, says Jesus Christ. In, in my kingdom are many mansions, and they far exceed whatever man in this sinful, cursed world could build. You know, men name their properties after themselves in this world, the Bible says. They name their estates, and the Bible tells us they think this will endure forever, and we know it doesn't. In fact, oftentimes, they're already corroding by the time the ribbon is cut. I remember uh, listening to an engineer saying that one of the things that led him to Christ was the very fact that on the, he, he built this bridge and that on the day of the ribbon-cutting ceremony, he could, he could spot some rust already underneath. So seek the Lord early. And then secondly, the issue of faith and prosperity. God was pleased to bless Uzziah because of his faith, but we have to keep in mind the theology of suffering as well. Now, that leads me, I've got to go to the second point, and we have to close. And that is the pride of Uzziah. The prosperity of Uzziah, point one. Secondly, the pride of Uzziah. This was his downfall, and this too often is the downfall of many. We see it, for example, with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was exalted by God. God is the one who lifts up kings, and he is the one who casts them down. And ne but yet, Nebuchadnezzar had to learn that lesson the hard way. What did he say? As he was standing on his balcony, looking out, and he said, look what I have done. Look at this great kingdom I have made. And an angel of the Lord says, you are going to be cursed, Nebuchadnezzar, for seven years until you learn the lesson that your prosperity comes from God. And he lost his mind for seven years. And he lived like an animal for seven years. His hair and his nails grew long, and he ate grass like an ox out in the field. Theologians suggest that this was ultimately the fall of Satan, that Satan thought that the, that the chair that Christ would take at the right hand of the Father was the chair for him, that that would be his place. As he was an archangel, he would be the one who would sit at the right hand of God. And when it was realized that that would go to the son who would become a man, remember, and man is made a little lower than the angels, that was an offense to the pride of, of the evil one. Herod, we are told in the book of Acts, received the uh, echoes of the crowd saying a voice of a God and not of a man, and God came and struck him. Judas was proud. 
He didn't want anything to do with the humiliation of Christ. He only wanted the exaltation. That's why he was there and hanging in there. And he became disillusioned and he became bitter that Jesus and his kingdom was not all that it was cracked up to be from his perspective. And so he sought his revenge by betraying Jesus and having him arrested. Well, Uzziah became proud, boys and girls. Uh, Uzziah became proud. And how did Uzziah show and demonstrate his pride? Well, Uzziah, as, as teenagers like to say, didn't stay in his own lane. Stay in your lane. Seems to be a popular phrase these days. Stay in your lane. Well, Uzziah didn't stay in his lane. Uzziah was king. Now remember, the Bible has taught, even from the Old Testament, that there was to be, I'll use the word separation, but that's not the best word. There, it was to be a division of labor between the king and the priest and the prophets. That is, the king had certain prerogatives. He was to reign. He was to govern. He was to meditate upon the law of God. He was to enforce that law of God. But there were certain things that the king was not allowed to do. The king was not allowed to take to himself the obligations and the prerogatives of the ministry, of the priesthood. Do you remember? This is how Saul lost the kingdom. Do you remember that? Do you remember when God took away the kingdom from Saul and gave it to his servant David? What was the occasion that brought that about? Do you remember? I'll tell you. It was because Saul offered the sacrifice. He was getting scared. The crowd was leaving. It was time for the sacrifice. Samuel's nowhere to be found, and Saul took it upon himself, and he offered it himself, but kings are not supposed to be offering sacrifices themselves. And so Samuel had to tell Saul that the kingdom is going to be taken away from you. And even as Saul began to walk away, you remember Saul reached out to grab him by the garment, and the garment tore. And he said, and this is a sign from the Lord, that God has torn the kingdom from you, Saul. And Uzziah should have known that story. And so Uzziah goes into the temple, and not only does he go into the temple, now the king had the right to go into, the, into parts of the temple. There was a special gate that the king was always supposed to use as he went into the temple, and he was supposed to go out that gate, and that gate otherwise was shut. It was open and shut to the king and the king alone. So he was allowed into the, into the general area of the temple. But Uzziah doesn't stop there. What does Uzziah do? The Bible tells us that Uzziah goes into the temple, into the holy place. Now remember, the temple is composed of two main rooms. One's about mm, two-thirds, three-quarters, I can't remember the dimensions exactly, of the building, and the other room is one quarter to a third of the building. One room, the first room that they would come into is called the holy room, and then the back room was the holy of holies. And what Uzziah does, now Uzziah does not go into the holy of holies, but he went into the holy room. That's where the altar of incense was. Remember that you have the altar of incense and you have the table of the showbread and then you have the veil on the other side and beyond the veil, that's where the Ark of the Covenant is and nobody goes in there but the high priest and the high priest only goes in there once a year and he doesn't go in there without blood and when he goes in, they tie a rope around his ankle in case he dies in the presence of God and they can pull him out. 
And he goes on and he even goes in. Remember, the high priest has bells woven into the edges of his garment to sound his presence coming in there he doesn't, so that God doesn't strike him dead. So that it signifies he's the high priest. So here's Uzziah. Uzziah goes in to this holy place and offers the incense. And, and the priests stop him and they say, what are you doing? Uzziah, stop. You're the king. You don't have the right to offer an incense offering. And Uzziah does what? He ignores them and he offers it. He brought his own censer with him and he offers this possibly strange fire to the Lord and the Lord causes leprosy to break out on the, on the forehead of King Uzziah and the priests see the leprosy spreading on his forehead and they rush to him, they grab him and they run him out and even Uzziah himself realizes what's happening to him and he, the Bible says, also ran out as he was being driven out. Now, first of all, we need to realize that the Bible does distinguish the, the, the church and the state. That was not invented by Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> okay, Thomas Jefferson didn't come up with the idea of separation of church and state. And I said I don't really like the term separation because the way the term is used today is to separate the state from God. That's the way that term often is being employed. Oh, separation of church and state. What they really want is separation of the state from God. They want atheism to be the prevalent religion of the state. Remember, church and state, they are next-door neighbors. They are across the street from each other. The king's palace is across the street from the temple. They are distinct, and the king is to do his kingly things in the palace, and the priests are to do their priestly things in the temple. But they both are under the Lord. It's not as though the state is to be separated from God. That wasn't the case in, in Israel's republic, and it shouldn't be the case in ours. The state and the church are both to serve the Lord. They're both under the lordship of Christ. Jesus isn't just king of priests, he's king of kings. Those are political people. The kings are supposed to kiss the son. They're supposed to reverence the Lord. The public square is supposed to serve Jesus. We're supposed to disciple the nations. These are not supposed to be neutral institutions. They are, to, they are there to serve God. It's one of the reasons I posted. I don't know if you saw Charles King, now King Charles III. Did you see his vows he took to uphold the true Protestant religion and the Presbyterian form of government in Scotland? Uh, look, look at our Facebook page and, and you'll see that video. What's he doing? What, what, what is being done there? Is that Are they violating church and state principles? No. The kings and civil magistrates are supposed to be nursing fathers to the church. That's what the Bible teaches. They're supposed to be encouragers to the church. But they don't take the keys of the kingdom. They don't dictate who can take the Lord's Supper, and they don't dictate who can become a communicant member. And they don't offer 
the sacrifices here in the Old Testament. You see, Uzziah began to usurp. He went too far in his pride. He usurped the role of the church. He usurped. He didn't stay in his lane as a king. And that's a danger, too, that we have to avoid where the, when the state begins to tell us as Christians what we may and may not do as Christians in our own worship and faith and discipline. Now, let me close by this. How, how, what, what are the lessons here? One of the lessons, I think, for us, of course, is that we must beware of pride. Pride is the chief of all sin. It is, it is kind of the mother of all sins. You could make the case that all other sins stem ultimately from the sin of pride. It's the sin of rebellion against God. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses had warned the people of God long before Uzziah that this would be a problem. Listen to what Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11. He warned the people of God, and he's warning us today. So listen to this warning. It, it was applicable in Uzziah's day. It's applicable in our own. He says this. Moses said to the people of God, remember, this is given to the people before they cross into the promised land. They're about to cross the Jordan. And Moses writes Deuteronomy to get them ready to enter the promised land. And he says, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God. Uzziah forgot. Now, isn't that interesting? He forgot the Lord his God while he thought he was serving God. He said, Do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Now, one of those statutes was that the priest, the son of Aaron, was to offer, the son of Levi was to offer the incense, not the king. But Moses goes on, he says, otherwise when you have eaten and you are satisfied and you've built good houses, that is, God, when God has prospered you in the land, when your herds and your flocks multiply, when your silver and your gold multiplies, all that you have multiplies, notice here that as you obey me, I'm going to bless you in this land. He says, but then watch out that your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What is the warning? Beware of pride, Americans. Beware of pride. I've blessed you in this land. I've made you, I've, I've given you the largest economy in the world. Now it may be the second largest economy. But for a long time, you're the largest economy in the world. You're living better than King Solomon lived. With all your appliances, all your blessings, all your medical care, all that you have. Even if, even if you don't consider yourself anything more than just middle class here, you're, you're exceeding the dreams of previous centuries with your electricity and your kitchens and your microwave and your refrigerator and your car and everything else. He says, watch out for pride. He says, otherwise you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. Well, I'm an American. Good old American ingenuity. Yes, sir, that's what did this. He says what? You shall remember the Lord your God, American. For it is he who is giving you power to make wealth. And you know, God who gives you the power to make wealth, he also is the one who can take it away. Don't think you're smarter than every other country. 
China's got a lot more PhDs in engineering right now than the United States is producing. You think about that. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And it shall come about if you ever forget the Lord your God, and you go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you that day. You shall surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you. God says, look, I giveth and I will take away. If you get proud and you start to show that pride by what? How do we measure pride? Disobedience to the commandments of God. It's that simple. Pride is not just some like inward feeling or motive. It is expressed through what? Disobedience to God. So how do we, in the midst of blessing, seek to stay humble? Let me give you a few, and we've got to close here. Number one. First of all, we have to examine ourselves, but we compare ourselves not to others. We compare ourselves to God's law and to the person of Jesus Christ. We examine ourselves. The Bible tells us many times in the New Testament, test yourself, examine yourself. Stop with your busyness for a few minutes and reflect. Are you walking with God in all the ways that God has commanded you to walk? Are there areas of improvement that you need? Are you omitting things that you should not be omitting? Are you committing things that you should not be committing? Examine yourself. Test yourself. If, there, if you find deviations to the standard of God, and friends, young people, let me say this. Get your standard from the Bible, not even from your fellow Christian friends. I think that's one of the reasons the high places never get removed. Our neighbors go to the high place and they're Christians. They do it. It's okay. Get your religion from the Bible. Not just because other teenagers do this and nothing seems to happen bad to them. Number two, we should be as Christians confessing our sins. The Westminster Standards tell us that we are not only to generally confess that we are sinners, but we are to confess the sins in particular. We are to name the sins. And we are not to use euphemisms. We are to call it adultery when we look lasciviously at another who is not our wife. We are to call it theft when we're spending too much time on social media when we should be working, when the employer is employing us. And we are, we are doing idle things. That's theft. It needs to be called what it is. And then we need to remember Job, what Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. All that we are and all that we have belongs to God. We own nothing, ultimately. It is all stewardship. And that we ought to treat our lives, our time, and our property, our families, as just that. Let's pray together. Lord, we uh, thank you for King Uzziah, who was a good king.